Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week, I'll be travelling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things plant-centric. And this week is no different. Uh, We're in December. How very exciting Christmas is upon us for those of you who celebrate. Um, And more excitingly, in my view anyway, um, Veganuary is coming up, which means there'll be a a wonderful opportunity uh, for us to encourage our friends and family, our omnivorous friends and family, to take on the the Veganuary Challenge uh, and hopefully spark um, a a long-term shift uh, to this glorious lifestyle that many of you listening uh, enjoy. Um, so I'd encourage you to, to encourage a friend and uh, to help you uh, in your quest to encourage your omnivorous friends. Or indeed, if you're vegan curious and listen to this and want to hear some some different perspectives on it than many of the kind of very seasoned vegans that I have on the show, um, there's going to be a series of Veganuary episodes coming out uh, in January to coincide that will feature some folks who, through the month of of January uh, in in the previous year, went vegan. You know, as a result of taking on just a thirty day challenge that they thought would end on the first of February, but actually all their all their discoveries in that month and the the life that they kind of led during that month. Uh, led them to actually make this switch permanently. So, um, if you have some vegan curious folks um, in your in your midst, uh, it's a great companion for them. Uh, and even if you don't, um, and you like what we do here at Bloody Vegans uh, Podcast, uh, I think you'll enjoy it too. They're they're always really interesting conversations, hearing people's journeys into the world of veganism. And I'm always kind of interested to hear uh, people who went through the veganuary journey too, because I know this. You know, we've touched upon it in this podcast before. There's been uh, um, a bit of to and fro as to the, the various pros and cons of of having this kind of uh, this event that lots of companies jump on the back of and so on. So um, it's always interesting to hear you know some real positive stories of people who've actually gone through it and it's and it's meant the change has stuck. So um, that's coming up in January. Usual bit of admin before we get into the uh, this week's guest. Uh, for those who would love to support the uh, Bloody Vegans podcast, and I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't. Uh, you you can uh, head to your podcast provider of choice and you can leave a review, hopefully a really nice one. Uh, those reviews really help uh, in terms of the searchability, discoverability of the podcast. So if you'd like to support in a way that will cost you absolutely nothing other than a couple of moments of your time, then you can do that too. Um, similarly, just tell a friend. That's that's always really helpful. Or sharing on social media. Thank you uh, so much to, to the, the folks who, who do that sort of thing. Uh, it is uh, really appreciated and doesn't go unnoticed uh, I, I can't thank you enough for helping spread the word um, and there's a couple of other ways you can support too uh, one is patreon uh, most people will be familiar with uh, search patreon if you if you're not in your kind of um, search provider of choice uh, and you'll find out a little bit about it it's a way to support creators essentially um, so if you would like to support the podcast through that you can there are a number of um, different tiers monthly monthly tiers you can you can contribute and you can get rewards in return for them as well so that's all very exciting and if you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, there's actually a kind of built-in version, if you like, into the Apple Podcast app that will allow you to subscribe for just 99 pence a month uh, in sterling or the equivalent in your currency. Um, and that will uh, give you access to uh, episodes ahead of time um, on occasion. It'll also give you uh, access to... Um, uh, bonus material and so on and so forth. So episodes that uh, the regular regular folks, regular listeners might not get access to at all. So it's all very exciting, isn't it? Um, so you can support in a number of ways. Anyway, thank you for listening to that. Or indeed, if you skipped it, I completely understand. Um, this week's uh, guest uh, was Mark Hawthorne. Mark Hawthorne is um, a, a writer of some 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 repute. Um, many of you will already know the name. As soon as I've said it, you'll know exactly who Mark Hawthorne is. For those of you who don't, uh, Mark is the author of Striking at the Roots, a practical guide to animal activism, which I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend. Uh, he's also the author of A Vegan Ethic, Embracing a Life of Compassion, 
toward all, uh, as well as Bleeding Hearts, The Hidden World of Animal Suffering, and most recently, the book that we are going to talk about most in this this particular episode is his new book, uh, The Way of the Rabbit, which is, if you like, a kind of um, a deep dive, a study, a love letter to the incredible... Um, the rabbit, <laughs> the the humble rabbit, um, but humble, but actually with with so much um, with so much incredible backstory that I, if, if I'm honest, I went into the conversation with little knowledge of of rabbits and came out with a, a great deal more and was absolutely chomping at the bit to get a um, uh, to get a copy of the book, which I did, and in fact I bought a few more for friends for Christmas. Um, Mark is a is a a foster parent, if you like, of numerous house rabbits. Um, I think he's up to seven at the moment. I was lucky enough to meet one of them at least via uh, via video call when we when we had our, our chat. Um, and uh, he's he's worked in, in in a number of animal sanctuaries and rabbit sanctuaries and so on over the course of his of his time as well. So um, he is a, a true uh, ally to the animals, a real a real uh, friend of animal activists, uh, and is actually a, a leader in this space. You know, his writing is is phenomenal. So I'd I'd thoroughly recommend you check out not only his new but where the rapid but also is, is back catalogue anyway um mark will explain as always <laughs> mark explains uh the way of the rabbit and and his other works far better than i ever could so let's get on with the conversation so without further ado here's a conversation between me and mark hawthorne Well, I grew up, like most people, eating animals and not really thinking anything of it. And in 1992, I was very privileged to take some time off and travel around the world for a couple of years. And I was living in Germany with a friend, and I suggested that we go down to Pamplona in Spain and run with the bulls. You know, this annual event mm. takes place in July. And so we took the train down. It was this big adventure and we did the bull run and I was probably the only person of the thousands of people there to feel ashamed afterward. Mm. Uh, it was just this, I can't really describe it, uh, Jim and, and, and convey the feeling, but it was just this deep sense that something was wrong. Uh, you know, here I was not really thinking about other species growing up, but suddenly there was this seed planted in me that, that, that there was something wrong in what we were doing. And I wish I could say that I went vegan that day or even vegetarian, but that didn't happen. But as I said, a seed was planted. And a few months later, I was privileged to live in India for a few months. And I was living in Ladakh in the Himalayas with a Buddhist family for a couple of months and almost everything I ate came from their garden. And so I was essentially vegan. Uh, the only exception was they would have buttered tea, which was kind of like a soup. So they did have some cows about, but the cows were there uh, for, for the milk. And th they didn't have electricity. They didn't have a refrigerator. And as it got close to winter, they dug a big hole in the garden and they harvested the, the, the fruits and vegetables and they buried them in this uh, garden and they let a cow come into the yard and nibble on the stalks and stems that remained and I was about you know six or seven feet away from this beautiful brown cow and just watching her eat and enjoying herself and I just realized that she had as much right as much desire to live as I did. And so I, at that point, stopped eating cows. And uh, eventually I came back to the United States and stopped eating uh, chickens and fishes and other animals. And it took me another 10 years, but I went vegan finally in uh, September of 2001. So I just celebrated my 20th anniversary. And that was really a a shorter process. I read Diet for a New America by John Robbins, and that inspired me to investigate the dairy and egg industries. And 
I went to a sanctuary for farmed animals and I met some of these chickens and uh, some of these cows who had been rescued from these industries. And I just decided on that day, I, I didn't want to support that anymore. So I just, I went vegan. And, uh, and at that point I wanted to do more to help animals. So I, I started becoming an activist. Incredible. Incredible. From, from your experience and, you know, traveling around the world, coming back to the States, do you think this, this kind of purposeful, intentional kind of distance created is ultimately the, the sort of problem, if you like, that if more people saw what you'd seen, they would make this, they would draw the same conclusions? I think we all get to this point in a different way. You know, we're all on a different path. Certainly mine is unique to me and it, it took longer than I was hoping it would. But I do think that we distance ourselves. I do think we have this cognitive dissonance where we mm. decide that, you know, we can hold these two opposing ideas at the same time and feel okay about exploiting animals, yet understanding, on the other hand, that you know, these animals feel pain and they suffer. And I think it's becoming more difficult for people who consume animals to do so and deny the knowledge that's out there. I think it's becoming mm. more evident. You know, we have more documentaries, we have more books, we have you know television shows um, because you know, the media, the, the reach of media has become much more prevalent than it was even 10 years ago. And so I think it's becoming more difficult for consumers to deny the fact that they, they do have some knowledge. They do understand. Yeah. Animals do feel pain. And, and I think they feel a level of guilt and every, you know, because, and that's one reason when you're at a protest or you're doing some, some form of activism or even just talking to somebody who eats meat, you know, they often push back and make jokes and, uh, mm. and, try to justify it in some way. And I think that that's because they understand that mm. what they're doing is, and I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word wrong, but for lack of a better word, they understand that it's wrong to eat animals. And I think they feel guilty about it. Yeah. When you, when you moved into the, the world, you know, the, the vegan community and so on, and you mentioned you, you sort of became an activist, what, what did that initially look like? What sort of steps did you take? Well, that was very difficult for me because I didn't want to join one of the major groups. I've never really been a joiner. You know, I've really been somebody who likes to kind of go out on his own and figure things out. And I didn't want to volunteer for a big organization. So at the time, there, wasn't, there weren't many resources out there uh, mm. to become an activist. You either joined a big group or you asked a lot of questions, uh, which is what I did. So I would ask everybody I knew about activism and I would email some of the groups and some people there were kind enough to respond with advice. And it was, it was a very slow process. But one of the things I did was sort of volunteering at a sanctuary for farmed animals. And that introduced me to more activists. So that was a big help. And I also started volunteering for a sanctuary for rabbits, a shelter uh, mm. here in the Bay Area called Save a Bunny. And I learned a lot about rabbits and uh, I love the fact that they're vegan. So that was a, it was an easy fit for me and then started fostering rabbits. And from there, I uh, just got more and more involved and started doing more writing and uh, writing for magazines like Satya and Veg News. And that introduced me to even more activists. So it sort of built from there. And then I started working on books. So it was a, a progression for me, slow, but it was very rewarding. Let's talk about that a second, your, your, your journey into, into writing. Did that, was that sort of almost a reaction to your, to your veganism? It felt like a, an outlet for you? Or, or did it come much before and you kind of then adapted the subject matter as you, as you became vegan? Yeah, the latter. I had always been a writer. I had been writing for magazines for many years. And I was actually, when I got back from uh, India, I started writing for a magazine called Hinduism Today. And they asked me to write an article that would be their cover story about the history of vegetarianism. And that was actually what in, inspired me to read John Robbins, because I was doing research for this article. 
And the more I read, the more I realized that I need to be vegan. And the more I realized that I needed to be vegan, the more I realized I needed to be writing about that. So I, I was always writing about social justice issues. I had been doing some volunteer work for a Tibetan uh, justice society, uh, group in the Bay Area, uh, helping Tibetan refugees. And I had met Tibetan refugees when I was living in northern India, so that was a good fit for me too. It was a, it was a topic I felt passionate about. Uh, but as I decided that I wanted to do more writing for animals, uh, I, I became vegan and I started doing writing for Satya Magazine, which is unfortunately no longer around, but it's, uh, it's a, it was a great publication for activists and for people who were kind of breaking into writing in that, uh, in that world because they were very forgiving uh, about you know, what I wrote. They, they were happy to read anything that I proposed they were great ed great editors, so I learned a lot. And then from there, you know, I had some experience, and I was able to start writing for Veg News. And after having some articles under my belt, uh, a publisher contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in writing a book for them about animal rights. And uh, this was uh, John Hunt Publishing in England, and they have a uh, an imprint called Changemakers, and they had not done an animal rights book at all. And I, and I, at the time I said, no, I, I don't really know what I could contribute to the literature that was already out there. But they said, well, think about it and, you know, get back to us if you have any ideas. And then I remembered how, how difficult it was for me in the beginning to get started as an activist. And so I mm -hmm. thought, well, why not write a book that consolidates a lot of these ideas, a lot of these best practices that I learned from other activists. So I kind of went back and interviewed uh, about 120 or so activists around the world and got their recommendations. So it's really their voice in the book more than mine. Uh, I have a few of my own ideas, a few of the things that I learned, but mostly it's these other activists, these you know really remarkable people I admired. And, uh, and that became Striking at the Roots which is the, the first book. This is actually, uh, it's actually in a 10th anniversary edition now. And it was uh, just a very, uh, a, a very good learning tool for me. And it's been great to hear from activists around the world telling me how they're using it and how important it's been for them. And that's been very rewarding for me. I can imagine that interviewing 120 activists in the process of, of writing this book, your your view of the world of activism, animal rights, etc., probably changed quite fundamentally. Would that would that be fair to say? You know, did it did it introduce any kind of new ideas or different perspectives that perhaps in your own personal journey prior to that you hadn't necessarily come across? Yeah, I think the the big thing for me that came out of that in terms of a learning experience was that there's really nothing uh, that we should ignore. There's no tactic that we should ignore. There's no strategy mm -hmm. that we should be putting down that, you know, we should be open to all ways of getting our message out there. And I think probably at the time I was a lot less radical. You know, I was probably one of these people right. who thought, you know, don't get arrested. Uh, don't, you know, don't make waves. Don't you know, just be nice. And as I was interviewing activists and hearing their stories, uh, I, I realized that they were very effective in doing mm. some things that would be considered illegal. And mm. so I, I started, I tried them out. You know, I did open rescue. You know, I, you know, I literally broke into factory farms and rescued animals, you know, something that I never would have considered before. I admired people who did that, but I didn't think that was for me. So it really was a learning experience for me. It really taught me that we have a lot of tools in the toolbox, so to speak, and we shouldn't ignore any of them. I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, over the 20 years of being being vegan, 10 years since publishing your first book solely, you know, centered around activism and, you know, direct action, different methods, and and thinking about the way where the vegan community is now, obviously 
there's over 6 billion smartphones in the world, that there's all kinds of social media in people's hands, in people's pockets, much better ways to spread messages in many ways. Arguably on the flip side, perhaps a bit more sanitization of, of, of vegan messages, you could argue, in, in depending on which way you're, uh, where you're kind of frequenting online. Mm-hmm. What, what's your view of kind of the vegan community now, activism as it stands, and, and that kind of, you know, what, uh, many and varied approach to activism tactics, if you like? Well, Jim, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Um, (laughs) On the one hand, it's been encouraging to see young people getting more involved and to see their passion and to see how it's sort of uh, pushing that peanut forward, you know, how how we're slowly making progress in some areas. Uh, And and it's also been very exciting to see the impact of documentaries, mm. um, which if we didn't have, if there hadn't been social media, I don't know that we would have had the success. You know, Blackfish came out in 2013 and it just made such a huge difference for marine mammals in captivity such that, you know, uh, it's now illegal in many air, in many countries to keep, these animals in captivity, to breed them in captivity, uh, even here in the United States. So that's been very, very rewarding. Um, But at the same time, it's been frustrating because there's so many things that we were so close to having achieved a victory, like the fur industry a Mm. few years ago. We were so close and somehow the fur industry picked up momentum again. That's changed. I'm very happy in the last even the last few months, uh, that's really changed. And I really think we're seeing the death knell for the fur industry. And then the other one has been animal testing. Uh, You know, Mm. this is one of the most uh, uh, difficult things for us to achieve a victory in. And yet other countries are are banning animal testing. Uh, But in the United States, we haven't banned it. And so that's been very sad to see. And, 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 and when I say animal testing, you know, I'm talking about several levels. I'm not just talking about cosmetics testing. I'm talking about uh, animals used in labs for medical research. I'm talking about animals being used in medical school for, uh, for doctors and veterinarians. I'm talking about animals being used in uh, grammar school for, you know, dissection, like probably frogs being dissected is the one that most people are familiar with. Uh, I'm talking about uh, animals being used in the military uh, in experiments. So there's all these levels. And it's just, it's so heartbreaking to to read and to see these examples of how these animals are used and um, mm. and know that, all, all, that we're so far away in, in many respects from getting these things banned. So, it's, so I think it's a mixed bag, Jim. It's, uh, again, I don't know that my answer is very clear. Uh, but I think there's 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 definitely been some positive things. There's been some reasons to celebrate, and then there's these other things that are quite frustrating because you think that we'd be we'd be actively pursuing, for example, animal testing, and there's not a lot of groups who are doing it. Yeah. What do you think needs to shift in that space? Do you think there is a uh, you know when we talk about animal testing spe- specifically that, that you know do you think there's a sense in the mainstream you know it, it's almost there's 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 too much of a sense in the mainstream kind of non-vegan world if you like that it is this necessary evil you know i I think about like covid vaccines and so on and 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 perhaps uh almost that that idea that animal testing is absolutely necessary becoming even more entrenched in people's minds Uh, your your perspective on that would be would be quite quite interesting i think well my sense and i don't know that this is correct but my sense is that it's going to take substantial advances in technology we have to reach the point where we have adequate substitutes that don't use animals, whether it's synthetic skin or, uh, you know, lab on a chip or synthetic organs, you know, things that medical researchers especially can use in place of animals. Uh, so, and that's been, we've seen some advances in that. So there is some hope there, but I think that's going to be the key as opposed to activism. You know, I, I think yeah. that as much as I'd love to say, if we can get 
activists rallied behind this issue, we can win it. I think it's really going to come down to having adequate uh, humane options that researchers mm -hmm. can use and feel confident in uh, that they can say, yeah, this is, you know, this is going to, uh, this is going to give us the answers that we need and we don't have to use animals. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Has as kind of activists today, thinking 2021, and, you know, thinking about, um, you know, COP26 is on in the UK right now in, in Glasgow, obviously climate change being being front and centre uh, of, of many of our news cycles right now. Uh, we can talk about uh, MBR and the kind of the, the, the Beagle testing that's that's going on in, in the UK too. Um, there's these different kind of fronts where animal activism has has got a place, a, a, a story to tell, etc. Do do you think there is a particular avenue that you've seen to be more effective in so far as persuading the the mainstream, you know, wider society, if you like, is, you know, whether it be climate change, uh, animal testing, you know, is is there a particular one, or do you think actually the tactics need to be many and varied, and we need to target every aspect? I think they need to be many and varied, but. From my experience, and again, I don't know that this is going to be true for everybody, but or that everybody will agree. But from my experience, the the tactic that seems to hit home is telling stories, um, sharing with people, you know, actual animals. Um, you know, the image of the beagles being rescued uh, in Italy. I don't. It was four or five years ago, but they were literally being carried over lifted over a barbed wire fence from a, an animal lab in Italy. I mean, you could see these animals faces, you know, they were, they were not just a statistic. They weren't just a number anymore. It was, and, and I think that that image and that story really helped people understand what was going on. And I think that helped push the peanut a little bit further again, but I, you know, I just, I really believe in the importance of telling stories and letting people understand what these animals experience. And if you can use a specific example, and if you have video that's not terribly graphic or an image you can show that's not terribly graphic, I, I'm not some, I'm not a proponent for really graphic images, uh, although they do have their place and some people can tolerate them. I just don't, mm. I don't like them personally, so I don't use them. Uh, and I tell activists, you know, don't feel you have to watch these horrible documentaries uh, because I worry about burnout, etc. But anyway, yeah, you know, back back to the the question. I I really think telling stories and helping people understand that we're really talking about uh, individual animals here is a very effective tool. Do, do you think that you know you, you mentioned a couple of things that that sort of struck a bit of a a chord with me and made me think about you know when you talk about storytelling, made me think about other movements. You know, thinking about inter intersectionality within the the vegan community. Do do you think that uh, one of the things that I've seen, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase, one of the things that I've I've seen within sort of social media, quote unquote, vegan community, is that there's a a push and a pull between the kind of single issue vegan who thinks that they shouldn't be involved in any other um, in any other uh, activism about any other subject, and then those and I'll probably sit more on this side of the fence, who think actually kind of all, all, all oppressions are interlinked and we are stronger together. Do, do, do you think that we that there is a, a tipping of the scale one way or the other in terms of the vegan community or, or in over the 20 years that you've seen things? Or is it just, just as much division as there was at, at the beginning and that's just the nature of any group? I think we're seeing more vegans and more activists becoming aligned with what they're calling intersectionality. You know, mm -hmm. intersectionality is a very specific term created by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw to address an intersection of, of racism and sexism. So I'm reluctant to use that term mm -hmm. and apply it to animal activism, but I know it's used quite a bit. And I think I understand what activists are saying when they when they use it. They're you know they're really talking about not being siloed, as you put it. Yeah. After, <clears throat> excuse me. So, I think that we're seeing more activists 
agreeing with that. You know, we're we're trying to not be so siloed, and we're not, and we're trying to understand that oppression is oppression. So whether it's sexism or racism or speciesism or ableism or classism or anything else, they all have their roots in oppression. They're all these marginalized communities, and we're not going to have liberation for animals until we have liberation for everybody. That's a very difficult concept for, mm. for, for activists to get because they tend to get very, especially new activists, they tend to get very passionate about just animals. You know, they tend to focus on just animals and not understand that you know, there's a whole history here. There's, there's a whole reason, you know, patriarchy and everything else. There's a whole mm. reason why we're exploiting animals and why it's acceptable. And I say that not including us or, or your listeners, but, you know, that's why that the, the, the world at large considers it acceptable. So there's a big, big issue here. It's very complicated. And I'm not an expert in it by any means. And I even wrote a book, uh, one of my other books, uh, A Vegan Ethic, is really about taking a holistic approach to veganism and to animal rights and understanding that all these oppressions are connected. Um, so in answer to your question, you know, I think we are seeing a, a movement toward that, toward accepting it. And that's very, that's very, uh, uh, it gives me a lot of hope. You know, that's very encouraging, but you know, there's still a lot of people out there who, who just want to work on one thing. You know, they just want to work on one issue. And that's okay for them. If that keeps you in the movement, if that keeps you from getting burned out, mm -hmm. it's okay, provided you understand that there are more issues out there, that there are there are larger issues to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think like you say, it's uh it's complex and nuanced and and I think that's where my concern lies sometimes is that is some of the social media platforms are they capable of delivering nuance, subtlety, and argument? And I, I sometimes think it's one of the, there's there's tons of benefits, but one of the potential pitfalls is, you know, we don't have these nuanced dialogues quite as much maybe as we would have done if, admittedly, they would have been smaller, but they would have been face to face and with groups and over the course of time, you know. Yeah, there nothing beats face to face activism as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, I mentioned Blackfish. It had a huge impact, obviously reached millions of people. And, and so I don't discount that. But one-on-one -on -one activism is really so effective and, and hard to beat. And that's where you get the context, right? That's where you get the nuance. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Let, let's turn to the, the latest book, shall we? The, the way the way. Sure. Let's, let's talk of the, you know, what inspired it? Let, let's talk about the journey of that book. There it is. Way of the rabbit. As I mentioned, I was volunteering for a group out here called Save a Bunny. And I was failing at every single attempt to foster, meaning that I would adopt every rabbit. I just kept <laughs> falling in love with them. They're just these, uh, these wonderful little vegan beings. And I just always had an affinity for rabbits as a species, even as a child. And as I was writing these other books, people would say, you should really write a book about rabbits. And I thought, well, I don't want to write a book about rabbits because there's all these horrible stories to tell. You know, they're exploited. I, I often say they're probably the most uh, exploited animal in terms of all the types of exploitation they're subjected to of, of any other species. You know, they're used for everything. And for years, I would, I would just think, well, I'm not going to write a book about rabbits. And then one day I thought, <clears throat> well, why not just write a book that celebrates them? It doesn't have to be that big. You know, it's only uh, 225 pages or so. But just focus on their role in literature and, and history and popular culture and as household companions. And just have a, have a fun book, have a cozy read for people. And so writing this book was a catharsis for me. Uh, for two years, mm -hmm. I just spoke to biologists and paleontologists and historians and scholars from all over the world asking them about what makes rabbits special and from their point of view. And it, it also includes my own interpretations, my own experience with rabbits. 
And it's just a fun book. And so for two years, I had the best time and didn't have to worry about, oh, today I'm going to write this ghastly passage that people are going to cringe when they read. It's all just fun. So it was a great, great, great pleasure. Gee, I, th- I think it actually plays, a, you know, as you mentioned it there, plays a really important role for you know us in the vegan community, people involved you know directly in, in activism. You talk about burnout earlier, you know that actually just just celebrating you know who we're trying to save, <laughs> um, who who we're talking about, uh, who's at the centre of our activism sometimes is is a is a welcome pressure release. So yeah. I, I'm kind of um, grateful to you for that. <laughs> Oh, thank you. And I'm I'm really amazed by how many people who work in rabbit rescue are vegan. I mean, you'd think it'd be natural if you rescue animals that you'd be vegan. Yeah. And I didn't think that that would be the case so much, but I'm hearing from people who run sanctuaries in England and in Canada and, and Australia and the United States, and they enjoy the book and they happen to be vegan as well. And I think that's just wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, in the in the process of research, obviously you were you were kind of very well versed in the in the world of rabbits before. But you know, when when you researched the book, was there anything you know really surprising that kind of jumped out? You know, perhaps when you were looking at the the history of of rabbits. The thing that jumps out at me, <clears throat> excuse me, about the history of rabbits that I found so surprising is that you know we have wild rabbits and we have domesticated rabbits. And they both have their own populations in the world. But every single domesticated rabbit today comes from the European rabbit. The Arctologus caniculus is, the, is the, the Latin name from the Iberian Peninsula in Europe. They all, every, every single mm. rabbit who is in a home today or unfortunately in a lab today or in a sanctuary they came from this one species, this one particular species. I find that amazing. And the other things that I learned that I found surprising were more biological. Uh, For Mm. example, rabbits don't really hop, even though classically you think of rabbits as as being (laughs) hopping animals. They actually have what biologists call a half-bound gait where their, their back limbs, their back legs work in tandem and their front paws land separately. So I just, and their teeth continue to grow, you know, even, which is one reason that they need to be constantly eating hay as domesticated rabbits or, or grass uh, in the wild, you know, they're constantly growing. Uh, So, and that their ears can turn, they can rotate 270 degrees and they can monitor two sounds at the same time and that they're eavesdropping on conversations between birds or between squirrels to know if it's safe for them to come out. I mean, they're just absolutely fascinating animals. I just, and you know, one of the reasons that I uh, call it the, uh, an affectionate history of nature's most surprising species is because of all these things I learned that even as a rabbit lover for many years, I had no idea. I'd love to explore a bit further that that piece about the that all, all domesticated you say all domesticated rabbits come from the same community. How did without giving away too much about the book, you know, obviously we encourage people to to pick up a coffee, but how, how did that come about? I think it started with the Romans, and the Romans loved Orctologus caniculus, you know, the European rabbit, the specific species that came out of. Uh, when I say the Iberian Peninsula, it's Spain and Portugal is the, that right. area. Uh, they loved this rabbit. Unfortunately, they were exploiting this rabbit. However, there are some examples, early examples, of these rabbits being domesticated as household, not maybe not household companions, but certainly mm. as as companion animals like pets. And the Romans carried this European rabbit everywhere. You know, everywhere they went, they brought this rabbit with them. And eventually, Orctologus caniculus ended up on every continent except Antarctica. And from there, people would, you know, through their, uh, through breeding, you know, figuring out which tr- character traits, which characteristics they wanted to have for the rabbit, whether it was floppy ears or a white coat 
or a large body or whatever, they over centuries managed to breed them. Now, I'm not a proponent of breeding. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that this is great that they did that. <laughs> I'm just saying that it's surprising and it's rather amazing and that it was all from this one species, Orctologus caniculus. That's pretty incredible. It's, it is. It's very it's, incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. really wouldn't have, like, like you say, genuinely a, a fascinating history. I would, would would have never never suspected that, you know, some, an animal so, uh, so, you know, so so ubiquitous mm -hmm. almost, like, is, is, it all comes from this one species. It's just, yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Really yeah. is. And I think it has to do with the, the that specific species had the perfect combination of attitude or... Uh, you know, whatever sense, whatever internal sense made them become friendly toward humans, it allowed them to trust humans, unfortunately, <laughs> in, in many respects. Yeah. But, yeah. I, you know, kind of like dogs, you know, like the first dogs mm. were wild wolves and they would approach humans. I mean, we don't exactly know what happened. There's a lot of theories, but at some point there was this connection between humans and wolves and we were able to breed them into the dogs we know today. And they're all, you know, every domesticated dog is from yeah. a wolf. Yeah. Cra crazy when you think, you know, the the sort of intervention of humans really to, when you think about dog species, it's just, it, it is mind blowing every time you think about that, that they, they come from, come from wolves. But right. yeah. Yeah, I, I would have never suspected the same to be true of rabbits, you know. Um, th thinking about the, the sort of, you know, rabbits in, in kind of, you know, in folklore, if you like, and there's a really interesting passage in the book about about Easter and the role that kind of the symbolism of rabbits have, have played in that. I'd love to hear a little bit about that from you. Well, yeah, there there are a number of theories uh, about how a rabbit came to be associated with Easter. Uh, one has to do with uh, a spring goddess named uh, Yoster, who possibly had a cult following in early Britain and whose sacred animal was supposedly a rabbit or a hare. Um, the most reliable evidence we have for the existence of this goddess and, and the worship around her is from a, a Benedictine monk named Bede, uh, B-E-D-E, mm. who wrote about her in the 8th century. Uh, but he makes no mention of any rabbits uh, or hares or any other animals. And, in fact, uh, a more reliable connection between Yoster and Lagomorphs occurs in uh, the late 19th century, where we find a legend in which the goddess turns a bird into a hare, and thus explaining how this little mammal might lay eggs. And now there's another theory that I think makes more sense, and that comes uh, out of England, and it's connected with the English countryside, and it's home to both hares and these birds called lapwings. And lapwings... Mm make their nests in a shallow uh, depression in the soil, and hares do this too. Hares don't build burrows like rabbits do. They, they just they have these little depressions. And it's not uncommon <clears throat> excuse me, for the two species to borrow each other's nests. So, you know, it, I, I can imagine some people walking along in the countryside and they come upon what was once a hare depression, a hare nest, it's now a lapwing nest and it has eggs, but they might see a hare run by and then they come and they, they find this, uh, this nest of eggs and they make this connection that, oh, hares, right. hares lay eggs. So, you know, there's this whole school of, of, of uh, investigation into how rabbits became associated with Easter, but these are just a couple of, of the theories and, um, you know, they're, they're really fascinating. Am I right in saying as well that there was this notion of an Easter fox? <laughs> yeah, there was before the Easter bunny, there was an Easter fox. And the theory about that is that because foxes have this uh, habit of stealing and burying eggs, that uh, right. uh, maybe that became, maybe that animal became associated with the Easter egg hunt where, you know, let's try to find the eggs that, uh, that the fox buried. 
I see. Yeah. Again, no, no, no idea. I'd never heard of an Easter fox until oh. <laughs> until you'd mentioned. I had not either until I started researching the book. So, yeah. <laughs> I can I can only imagine the 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 things you you must have found out through throughout the process of this. Well, as incredible. I yeah, as I said, I had such a great time. <laughs> Every day was a a new revelation for me, and so much fun. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Think there's a there's a passage in the book towards towards the the, the end where you talk about um, ways that the that us as readers can help can help rabbits. Um, it'd be good to just cover off a couple of those just so that, just so people get the kind of idea. And obviously, we'll, we'll pick these up in the. I encourage people to pick these up in the book, but uh, it'd be good to talk about those. Yeah, I'll just um, I'll grab the book here and um, and and I'll read from them. Um, and the first is uh, treat wild rabbits with kindness. If your yard or garden is overrun with rabbits eating your flowers and vegetables, seek humane solutions. And it goes on to give some examples. Um, number two, watch out for nests. Not all rabbits burrow safely underground. So before mowing your lawn, carefully check the grass and watch for patches of brown, dead grass, which may indicate a camouflage nest near the surface. And you know, baby rabbits, they, mm. they grow up fast, so they'll probably be gone pretty quickly. Another important one is volunteer at your local shelter or uh, rabbit rescue organization. There's plenty to do socializing rabbits to make them uh, uh, more adoptable. Uh, and again, uh, yeah, just adopt, don't shop. And never, uh, the last one I'll give is, uh, is, is really important too, and that is never give rabbits as an Easter present. Uh, well-meaning mm. parents every year will go out and they'll acquire one or two rabbits and they'll bring them home for their kids before they understand what it takes to take care of a rabbit. You know, rabbits live 10 years or more. They are not uh, easy pets. They're not great starter pets. For example, they don't tell you when they're sick like a dog or a cat would. So we really need to educate ourselves before we decide we want to bring a rabbit home as a companion. But what often happens is that these parents don't do that and they end up, uh, after a, a few weeks or a couple of months, they end up adopt, uh, excuse me, abandoning them uh, at a mm. shelter or dumping them in the wild. They'll dump them in a, in a park. Uh, and in fact, my wife and I were walking, we live in an urban area, and we were walking uh, back in June uh, on a Sunday morning, and we saw two rabbits just on the corner, on the street corner, uh, nibbling grass. And mm. I knew right away that these rabbits did not belong there. And mm. we managed to scoop them up and bring them home and care for them. And uh, I'm almost positive they were abandoned uh, Easter Easter bunnies. So, yeah, there's just I, I thank you for bringing that up, Jim. That there's a, there's a section in the book that really talks about how important it is that we take care of these wild and domesticated rabbits. Yes, yeah, so, so important. And that, picking up on that last point, you know, I, I'm reminded of um, my childhood in the UK. I don't know if it's much the same in the states, but um, rabbits often considered that the starter pet for young children. Um, often given in very small hutches not considering, you know, the kind of the space they're given and so on. Um, and, you know, I, I think back to those times when I either, you know, I, my my parents had, had bought me a, a rabbit at sort of five or six years old and um, it being in this small hutch and so on. And I, I sort of think, you know, now I, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't do the same with my with my with my little one. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a movement in the 19th century in England that uh, I talk about in the book, um, that rabbits were great for kids, especially for boys, because having the responsibility of taking care of a rabbit would keep them out of trouble, keep the boys out of trouble. Uh, and it was good for girls to have kind of a surrogate baby, you know, so they'd learn how to care right. for, for someone. Um, so that, yeah, that whole movement about being starter, great starter pets, I think started in the 19th century and, uh, it's been difficult to disabuse people of that ever since. Yeah, well, I think, I think a good start for people might be to to pick up your your book and and get get educated in in the way of the rabbit. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, just before we get going, though, before we uh, we send folks off, it would be absolutely uh, remiss of us not to tell people where to go about getting a copy because uh, I've I've picked up one myself. Uh, it is. 
genuinely fantastic. Like you say, a real. Um, uh, I imagine it was a joy to write. It's a joy to read, and and does feel like this really welcome kind of um, uh, pressure pressure valve release, if you like, from from our day to day kind of thoughts of activism and, and the plight of animals. So I thank you again for it. But where would folks go about picking one up? Oh, thanks, Jim. Um, well, you can get it anywhere. Anywhere that sells books, you can uh, ask your independent, your local independent bookstore to have it. You can order it online, all the usual places. Uh, people ask me if there's a specific way to order it that benefits me, uh, which is kind, but I, I end up donating quite a bit of, of what I earn from these books, which isn't a lot anyway, to uh, animal organizations. So uh, the best thing you can really do is just support your local independent bookstore, I think. And if you yeah. do order it online, uh, you can go to my website, markhawthorne.com, and click on the, the link for the book. And I have several places on there. I don't make any uh, any money from these links. They're just places that I know, people, uh, places like you know Amazon and, and Book Depository and uh, – uh, other places that sell it so uh, but I, it's available everywhere fortunately so great stuff and definitely i'd recommend folks picking up a copy of striking at the roots as well 10 years on and and still just as relevant so um you definitely pick up a copy in your local bookstore whilst you're there too thank you Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Uh, thank you again for for the way of the rabbit and all the amazing work that you that you do within the sort of vegan activism space. So it, it's you know so so well needed, and and your voice is one that uh, is, is is well respected and 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 we're we're all very grateful for. So uh, I thank you. Well, thank you, Jim, and thanks for all you do. And again, congratulations on the success of your podcast. Uh, I, I, it's just it's wonderful that you're doing what you're doing and helping people who are new to activism or people like me who think they know it all. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.